<clears throat> this evening we will be um, actually looking at some of the individual gifts in those gift lists that um, we read so frequently in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians 4, and we hear about also very frequently. But this evening I want to, to guide our thoughts with Peter's words in, in 1 Peter chapter 10, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, and in the beginning of verse 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies. Let us pray. Our Father, we do indeed seek your spirit this evening to guide us in our thoughts and in our study of your word. Father, more than that, in the application of which we are studying the charismata, the grace gifts, we desire that your church would be healthy and whole, and we see from your word that that health and the growth of the body of Christ comes from that which each member provides. And we know that no member of your body, the body of Jesus Christ, provides anything that comes from within him, him or her, but rather these are put in us by the Holy Spirit, who distributes severally as he wills for the edification of the body. So, Father, we earnestly ask that you would show us our place, that you would reveal to our hearts each individually and to our minds the nature of that special gift or gifts that you have bestowed on each one of us by virtue of us being in Christ by grace through faith. And that we would have the diligence and even the courage, Father, to not only exercise these gifts for the edification of the body, but to, to stimulate them, to grow them, to expand and mature in the giftedness that you have given, that we might be open to the working of the Holy Spirit for your glory, for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. The gift lists. Usually when you pick up a book at a Christian bookstore or in a library on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the chapters will, will be enumerated by the different gifts. The gift of tongues, the gift of words of wisdom and of knowledge, the gift of prophecy, of healing. And then there will be a chapter describing that gift. And some of the more modern books, of course, toward the end of the book, will have a spiritual gifts inventory where you can take what is essentially a psychiatric or psychological test and it will tell you uh, which gift or gifts you have. And I, I think I speak from experience, or at least I, sp I know I speak from experience in my own uh, reticence to go in that direction. First of all, I, I do not believe that the gift lists that we read primarily from the pen of the Apostle Paul, I do not believe they were exhaustive. I don't believe they're complete. 
Gordon Fee, as I've, I've mentioned him many times before, primarily um, for two reasons. One, his, his evident skill as a theologian and as one who handles the Word of God fairly, but also because he is an avowed Pentecostal, uh, which means he is of a, a different uh, theological flavor within evangelicalism than I am. And yet he says, um, on all such enumerations, they are ad hoc, meaning they're, they're basically written for the occasion. Uh, Paul, in thinking of, of Romans, in Romans 12, he, he writes a list that, that pertains to that congregation. When he's writing to the Corinthians, he, he writes a list that is more expanded and it has different things, but it pertains to that congregation. They are ad hoc and probably representative, not exhaustive or definitive. When he says probably representative, I want to say they are representative. In the passage that I just read in 1 Peter, which agrees with Paul's writings in Romans 12, verse 7, I think shows us that which these gift lists represent. But we read in 2 Peter chapter 1 that his divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now that teaches us that the Holy Spirit, given by God, gives us individually and corporately as the body of Christ everything we need. And he gives it to, to us when we need it. Now mine and Angela's experience over the years, uh, not just as, as um, participants in the charismatic movement back in the 1980s, but also with members of each of our families who are Pentecostal, so we, we, we frequently, you know, we don't really have the discussions anymore. That's because, you know, we try to stay together and, and not have any conflict. But clearly there's differences of opinions that, that we've dealt with um, all our lives. And my experience has been that when a believer is convinced that he or she has a particular gift, um, that's not necessarily good for the body. And I know that I have heard, even as an elder in this church, I have heard people tell me, well, that, that's not my gift. Or people come into the church, and we have had this too, and say, okay, this is my gift, move over. I have the gift of prophecy, step aside. You know, there, there's a certain, I don't know, arrogance that develops when, when we are convinced by, oftentimes by the pulpit, that we have a particular gift, and, and that's, that's something that we should focus on. And, and if there isn't that particular need, well, then we go to another church where there is that need. I don't see that in Paul's writings. I don't see that in Peter's, because in, in verse 11, he goes on and says, So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Who gets the glory here? Not the one who has the gift. That was primarily the problem in Corinth. That there were those who were glorifying and there were others who were magnifying those who had certain more exotic and more visible gifts. While the feet and the hands and the other members of the body were being disdained and treated as if they were not necessary. So I think there's a, a, a very great danger in the way the whole concept of spiritual gifts and charismata, grace gifts, has been handled, particularly in the last 50 years. And I think it would be well for the church, both um, 
non-Pentecostal and Pentecostal to listen to the teaching of the Pentecostal Gordon Fee, that these lists are not exhaustive. These lists are not meant to be the all and all of what the Holy Spirit has given. They represent the ministry of the person of the Holy Spirit within believers within the church. Because that is the context in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, here in 1 Peter chapter 4, Ephesians 4, certainly, the building up of the body of Christ. The context of the charismata is not a personal prayer language or personal victory over sin or power over enemies or personal health or prosperity. By no means. It is for the building up of the body of Christ to the glory of God through Christ, through the church. And the Holy Spirit will equip the body in proportion to its needs and its function. If a body of believers gathers, it will have needs. And the Holy Spirit will meet those needs through the giftedness of the members of that body. And so what I want to focus on even this evening as I actually discuss, at least mention, well, I should say as I categorize the gifts that we are given, I want to focus on those, those categories rather than say, well, this is my gift, or, or no, that's not my gift. So when, when you hear the individual gifts, charismata, try not to think, oh, is that my gift or is that my gift? But rather, think more in lines with the categories that I presented to you a couple weeks ago. I'm going to give tonight two basic divisions. The first one being ordinary and extraordinary. Okay. And, and this is, I think, something that you've, you've felt when you've read, especially Paul's letters, and, and you read of the different gifts and you realize, well, well that's rather ordinary. I have, the, I have the gift of administrations. I can balance my checkbook. Okay. Not everybody has that gift. <laughs> Not everybody can. And, and within the charismatic movement, again, I, I speak from experience, there's a, certain, there's a certain jealousy and discontent that develops, as well as a certain uh, condescension that develops between those who have the extraordinary gifts and, and those who just have the ordinary gifts. And a lot of mention is made of Paul saying, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And, and a, lot of, um, a lot of traction is given to that one verse, and we're not going to have time to deal with that. But nonetheless, I think we recognize ordinary gifts and extraordinary gifts. And then the second division is the one I presented to you two weeks ago, and that is a threefold division. Signs, the sign gifts, speaking gifts, and serving gifts. And there is a, a correspondence between these two taxonomies, these two different ways of categorizing things. For example, the extraordinary gifts, I think, are fairly clearly corresponding to the, the sign gifts. Now, that concept of a sign gift is, is really overlooked in a lot of Pentecostal writings. And I really want to focus on that. Not a great deal of time, because I don't think it needs it. But the other correspondence, of course, is the ordinary gifts which, of course, we would associate more with the serving gifts. And the speaking gifts, well, they kind of go both ways. There are certainly some extraordinary speaking gifts, the gift of prophecy, words of wisdom and of knowledge, the, the gift of tongues. Now, certainly, that's a speaking gift. 
and, and it's an extraordinary one as well. So the, the speaking gifts kind of overlap, both the ordinary and the extraordinary. But I want to reiterate the, the basic premise of, from which I've been operating throughout this series, and I, I believe to be the biblical one from 1 Peter chapter 4 and from Romans chapter 12, verse 7. And that premise is that the initial advance of the gospel is accompanied by sign gifts. Whereas the ongoing growth of the church is founded upon the speaking and the serving gifts. Now, I think certainly this is true as we read the scriptures, but also as we read the history of the church in the first century and on into the second century. We continue to read, for example, in the Apostolic Fathers, those who succeeded the Apostles, we read in their letters of men and women who were prophets and prophetesses. Later on in the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve, we begin to see that, that the gift of prophecy maybe was starting to, to fade away, and yet there were those who were still purporting to be prophets, and there are some very humorous guidelines that this second century document gives us, that if he asks for money, he's not a prophet. Isn't that timeless? If he stays more than two days, he's not a prophet. So we can see that even the extraordinary gifts, as we read in 1 Corinthians 14, are under the authority of the church. They're under the authority and the supervision and the discretion of the church. If a man comes in claiming to be a prophet and then afterwards asks for money, as early as the second century we're told, cast him out, he's a false prophet. So what are these extraordinary gifts? I want to talk about them first. These are given to validate revelation. And I think Paul establishes this in several passages. Starting in Romans chapter 15, he says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. Paul calls this phenomenon signs of the apostle. Now, he only does that once, but we all know in reading Paul's letters that he was one as untimely born. He wasn't one of the original disciples. He didn't walk with Jesus. And he admits that his elevation to the, the uh, apostleship was unusual that he was not raised to the apostleship, and yet he maintains very vigorously that it was not given to him by men, that he did not receive his commission from Peter or James or John, but he was given his commission by Jesus Christ himself. And yet because of his former career as a persecutor of the church, he had to defend his apostleship and so we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12, Paul says these things were done among you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He links his message 
with the attesting signs and wonders and miracles that God granted, just as he did in the ministry of Jesus Christ, but also in the ministries of Peter and John. These were signs of an apostle, signs of a true apostle. And they were meant to validate the message that these men were bringing. Now, I think that's a very important point. Because we live in an age, and we have for, for quite a long time in the church, where people will tell you God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so not only can he do these miracles of, of, of the apostleship, he continues to do them without realizing that they were not done willy-nilly. They were not done as a regular order of business. Even in the Old Testament, they were not. Very few of the prophets, none really of the writing prophets, performed a regular array of miracles. The miracle workers among the prophets were Elijah and Elisha. But even after Elisha, when you have the school of the prophets, these were not miracle-working men. Miracles were worked with, by Moses and through Joshua. But then, you know, they kind of died out. The standard operating procedure in the Bible is to the law and to the testimony, not to the miracle worker. And so those who advocate the continuation of the signs of an apostle in the church today have a really major question to answer, and that is, what is your revelation? What are you bringing to the church that your miracle attests being from God? What, what, what are you adding? Frankly, I think, and, and I've said this before, I do think that if, if it is true that these gifts are normative in the church today, I'm not saying they don't happen, where the gospel is entering virgin territory, pagan darkness, places in the world that have had no light. It doesn't surprise me one bit to hear of remarkable things happening. But if it is normative to the church today, then I firmly believe that the publishers of the Bible should be using three-ring binders so that we can add whatever is being attested by these miracles, by these signs of the apostle. What gifts from the gift lists pertain to this category? Well, miracles of healing, raising the dead, casting out of demons, and the laying on of hands by which the Holy Spirit is administered and gifts are given. Summary judgment of sins. Now we're, we're told by Jesus in Matthew 18, for example, the pattern for church discipline. Peter simply says, to Sapphira, the feet that carried your brother out are coming to get you too. Summary judgment. Paul says, I hand such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That happens in the churches today. People who, who claim to have summary judgment because of what they claim to be their gift. Also, power over nature in its natural course. Now, that of course, brings to mind walking on water. And I've, I've frequently suggested that charismatics still ought to take life preservers when they go out boating. But it also pertains to our physical health. And there is a belief within the charismatic movement, it is not prevalent, but there is a belief within that movement that even the powers of physical decay will submit to the one who is gifted with the gift of healing. And we all experience when we're praying for an elderly person, 
We're praying, for example, Angela's Aunt Doris, who is a sincere believer and has walked faithfully with the Lord for, for many years, and she is seriously ill. Of course, we pray our desire, because I do, because there aren't a whole lot of members of my wife's family that care for me. Okay? I don't know why, but it's true. Um, there are a few, there are a few, and she's one of them. She and her husband have always been very solicitous of, of Angela and, and myself and, and our well-being and our children. We don't get together with them, but their cards are always very sweet. And so, you know, I think, Lord, for, for Ken's sake, you know, let them, let them live a little longer for our sake. But, but we also know that, that this body is decaying. Paul tells us that, that, you know, outwardly we are wasting away and inwardly we're being renewed. And so we don't have that power over nature in its usual course. In regard to this category, then, I think there is a biblical pattern that if we don't follow, we will enter into a great danger with regard to the church. And I mentioned it before, the pattern of three, as I just mentioned now, that the, the scriptural historical record gives us three periods of miracles and signs attesting miracles as standard business. Those the time of Moses and Joshua, those in the time of Elijah and Elisha, and those in the days of Jesus and the apostles. Apart from that pattern, we need to be very careful to take upon ourselves sign gifts, to believe that we have the power of the miraculous, the extraordinary gifts over nature and over spirits, over life and death and over judgment, recognizing that by doing so, we are stating, we are attesting that the words of our mouths are divine. They are direct revelation. And they are to be obeyed. And we also need to remember that these particular gifts are the ones that Satan is most earnest in duplicating as we read in the days of Moses, where the magicians of Egypt were able to duplicate many of the miracles that were worked through Moses. And as Paul warns us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 concerning the man of lawlessness, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders. So when we hear of men or women who profess to have these miraculous gifts, what do we do? Do we deny them outright? Do we say, oh no, that can't be, that's of the devil? I don't think so. I think the question is, what is the message? If the message is in accordance with the scripture, then it has already been attested. It need not be validated anymore, at least hopefully not to us. I am hoping that none of us need to see a healing or someone raised from the dead in order to believe the testimony of the Word of God. But we need to test the spirits, as John tells us, because not every spirit is from God. And we are warned not with regard to the speaking gifts or of the serving gifts, but rather of the sign gifts that Satan will duplicate them, if possible to deceive even the elect. For my part, I do not believe that the sign gifts are operative within the more mature church of the Western world. I think that we have 
scriptures. We have the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we have the testimony of his apostles to his work, to his person, to his ascension, and to his ministry from the throne of God. I think that, unfortunately, our, uh, maybe fortunately, depending on your personality, but, but our realm is in the more ordinary. Our realm is in the, in the realm of bodybuilding. And what the apostles write to us has more to do with the building up of the body of Christ, its growth, its maturity, its health, not so much in breaking virgin ground and piercing the darkness with the light of the gospel, This, and I think we should all be very grateful, was done by men long before we were born. And we benefit incomprehensibly by their labors. And so rather than looking at ourselves and seeing whether we have the sign gifts, rather we should look at the other two categories, the serving and the speaking gifts. It's an ordinary path, but is incredibly necessary for the glory of God through the church, through Jesus Christ. Serving gifts. Peter says in the passage we just read that we should should do both types of gifts as good stewards of the grace, the manifold grace given to us by God. And there's the charismata, grace gifts. Manifold, meaning many different types, a whole bunch of different varieties, which is why I don't believe the lists were meant to be exhaustive. I think the manifold nature of God's Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit giving gifts, is as varied as the people within the church and the needs within the church. And yet they do flow within two basic channels, the channel of serving and the channel of speaking. And Peter says, whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, by the strength that God supplies and not by their own strength, And I think that's a very wise way of saying it because the serving gifts are not the visible ones. They're not the extraordinary ones. They're not the ones that will get a person a great deal of accolades and praise. Sometimes they don't even get that person notice at all. And so I don't think Peter means strength physically. That's necessary, of course. But I think it's more strength morally, spiritually. As, P- as Paul says, that we should not grow weary in well-doing, knowing that we shall be rewarded by the Lord. And, and that's, that's hard, hardest for someone who recognizes the movement of the Spirit in their own life as being a serving ministry. Because, of, frankly, there's just not as much glory in that. And yet it is incredibly necessary. In fact, I'm going to say that though they are the least visible charismata, as Gordon Fee writes, yet they are arguably the most important for the growth and the health of the body. Paul, I think, argues that when he uses the metaphor of the human body, that those parts that we we do not deem most honorable, yet we bestow on them the greatest honor, they are necessary. Where would we be without a foot? Where would we be without a hand? Where would the ears be without the eyes? There's an incompleteness, there's an unhealthfulness about the body that doesn't have a vibrant and active spirit-led diaconate. And that's what we're talking about here. What are the gifts from the gift list? Well, giving, mercy, exhortation, though that often involves speaking as well, yet it is more of a serving gift. Helps, 
administrations, hospitality, leading. I think that's an interesting one to think about, but leading is more of a serving gift. Jesus said, he who would be the greatest among you shall be what? The servant of all. And we see even in the early church, for example, when, when Paul goes up to Jerusalem because of the controversy over Gentiles needing to be circumcised, it isn't Peter who leads the council, it's James. It isn't the mighty Pope, the first Pope, who takes charge. No, he's, he even calls himself a, a fellow elder in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 5. So leading, I would put among the serving gifts, acts of kindness caring and compassion. These are the least visible, but what would we be without them? What would the church be without them? And in fact, I think many churches are without them. At least, they're not without them in the sense that wherever believers are gathered together, these gifts have been given, these gifts are present. But you know, I've said before, there's a remarkable autonomy given to us a remarkable, uh, if I may say it, free will that we have in Christ either to exercise the gifts that God has given us or not to. And I think our churches are so geared toward, as Corinth was, the more visible, the more praiseworthy, the more notable gifts, people, believers, are lulled into a sense of quietude where they just come and soak it up and then go home. Which is why so many of our churches are so cold. And it's why the church at large has no influence. For the church to have influence in the world, it must be the community of God's people, the covenant community of those redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, living as a community within the culture around them. And no community can function without these serving gifts. What would the Lord be, the Lord of the manor, if he didn't have a blacksmith? If he didn't have tenant farmers? If he didn't have a cooper or a tanner? They were not the noble ones, but they were certainly very important. You know what that Lord would be? He would be a knight, an itinerant man with a sword, selling himself, as so many preachers have done over the years, to the highest bidder, because he has no body. He has no church to speak of, just an audience. And so I, want, I really want to play up the serving gifts. I think, frankly and honestly, in our own experience over the past 26 years that I've been here, we really haven't had a problem with the speaking gifts. We have men who will speak. I think we have a problem not with the serving gifts being absent, but with men and women willing to stand up and say, I'm going to take charge of that. I'll be responsible. And seeking their praise and their reward from the Lord. Paul writes about the gifts in the context of the body in Ephesians chapter 4, and, and, and I will say hermeneutically, if you're doing a personal study on the gifts of the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, going on through verse 16, that ought to be home base. He doesn't actually list a whole lot of gifts except the gifts of men that Christ gives to the church. But in that passage, he gives us the purpose of the gifts. And he says in verse 16, 
being fitted, speaking of the church, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And when those parts don't work properly, there is epilepsy in the church. Spasms. Or there is uh, paralysis in the church where one segment of the body just doesn't work at all. And so the metaphor of a healthy body really does stand or fall upon the functioning of the diaconate, the serving charismata. But without the speaking charismata, the serving charismata is nothing more than a social group, a help group, a support group. And there are plenty of those in our society. The church is not a support group. The church is not a place to go when you, you need to get over divorce. Yes, the church should help you deal with it, but that's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to convey to the people of God the wisdom of God and to equip them not only to the serving of one another, but then to the serving of the world around. And that requires the speaking gifts. Because we still, even though we have the Word of God and we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we still need to have God's Word preached, taught, proclaimed, counseled. We still need those who are gifted in that channel of speaking. Paul, or Peter says, remarkably, he says, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. And, and that's the New American Standard. What he literally is saying, let him speak as it were as the mouth of God. And that fits with what we read in the Old Testament, the Lord's words against the false prophets, where he says, who told you to take up my word upon your lips? And what James says about those who would desire to be teachers, he said, let not many of you desire that, for as such you incur a stricter judgment. So in a way, if in your own analysis of your, of your own heart, you realize that, that your gearing and your giftedness is more towards serving, praise God. Because though you will give an account before the Lord, as we all will, you will not have the, the, the double burden of handling your own soul in righteousness and integrity, but also handling the Word of God in the same way. That is uniquely those who have the speaking gift. And you may be shocked at the ones I include. But I think I've made it clear that I do not see in Scripture the complete abolition of any of the gifts mentioned by the apostles. I do believe that there is a pattern that governs their operation, but I am not willing to say that this gift and that gift are no more. And so among the speaking gifts we have prophecy, evangelism, words of wisdom and knowledge, tongues and the interpretation of tongues, teaching, admonishing, preaching. Although that's not lifted, listed as one of the gifts in the gift list. And I would also add prayer. That while we are all exhorted to pray, and responsible for prayer, just as we are all exhorted to serve one another. And I want to touch on that as we close. 
I do think, as Paul says, that there are those who have the gift of faith. There are those who have the gift of prayer. They have, the, they have an understanding of what prayer is. And I think, though, it is, um, it is definitely a serving gift, but rather it is more of a speaking gift. For oftentimes those who have the gift of prayer serve to lead the congregation in collective prayer to the Lord. Back to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that the gifts that, God, that Christ has given are for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Very briefly, I want to mention what is known as the, the evil comma that shows up in many of our Bibles between the word saints and for the work of service. There's a comma that doesn't belong in the Greek because the Greeks didn't have any commas. In fact, they oftentimes didn't even use spaces between their words. But that comma assigns the work of service to the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor teachers. Whereas with no comma, we realize that the speaking gifts have the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of service. The teachers don't do everything. We read that in Acts chapter 6, where the disciples said it is not fitting that we should neglect the ministry of the word in order to serve tables. They were not demeaning the serving of the tables. They were simply saying, we must focus on the equipping. You must focus on the serving. And so we have these categories. We have these working by the Holy Spirit. They're present in any body of Jesus Christ, any congregation of believers. That which is necessary for life and godliness is there. And I do believe that the Holy Spirit will reveal to each one of us which of these channels the gift that he has given us, the gifts that he has given us, flow. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without the help that we need. We read in the scripture and in our own hearts that in us dwells no good thing. When we look at the task of even our own sanctification, much less that of the purifying and, and the growth of the church, if we look with honest eyes, we are despairing. And yet we know that you have given us your Holy Spirit, who is the power of God unto salvation and unto sanctification, also unto witness. And we thank you, Father, that you have given us gifts of grace. Each one has received gifts of grace when they have received the Holy Spirit. So, Father, I pray that in this body and in all those that sincerely name the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that the Holy Spirit would have free reign, that he would be able to distribute severally, even as he wills, the gifts that that body needs. But, Father, also that each believer would be open to that gifting, would be courageous in its development and exercise, and would be steadfast and faithful even in the absence of acknowledgement or praise, Father, that we would, we would be looking only for our reward from you. 
We ask, Father, that you would do these things, that you would pour out your Spirit again upon all flesh, but that you would begin with the household of Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction this evening from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.